Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. This is Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hello. Hello. How are you? I'm all right. I was slightly worried about the residual effects of the humiliation after last week and the Boston Red Sox quiz. Yeah, it's it's been hard. Have you uh, have you told your family about what happened? No. Are you worried that uh, they might not look at you in the same way again? I think I think I'm hoping they won't find out. Thank God your family have little to no interest in this podcast. Exactly. Maybe the proof of the pudding will be if it has any effect on your personal approval ratings. Mm, exactly. The thing is, you see, I couldn't do any revision because I didn't know the quiz was coming. Well, you did know the quiz was coming. No, I didn't. I said on the episode, should we do that next week? Oh, I just didn't, wasn't listening. <laughs> <laughs> um, I think we've now reached, I think we've now worked out the sort of, what the problem was. We're actually in Cornwall for half term and um, I, it's quite wet. So I don't think I'm... I have brought my swimming stuff, but the sea is, it's quite interesting, this. The sea is significantly warmer than the ponds. Can I ask the, what I feel to be the obvious question, which is, if you're going swimming, what difference does getting wet in the rain make? It's just more that it's windy and the tide is very hard. You know, it's like it's waves, cra- we went to the sea yesterday, and it was cr- the waves were crashing. Yes, yes, we don't want to lose you to Lord Poseidon. We have, by the way, beca- because of our second trip to Cornwall, we have become much more adept at the old electric car charging. We've become much more sure certain electric car chargers. Do the Miliband family play any games in the car? How do you pass the time? That's a long journey. We review old Labour Party conference motions. <laughs> <laughs> no, we don't actually know. One of my kids listens to audiobook and the other reads or looks out the window. Who's in charge of the stereo? We don't actually have the stereo on in general. So do you and Justine sing like the Von Trapps? <laughs> no. Are the, uh, are the Miliband family still playing Wordle? I'm interested that you think that the clues have got worse. I, I, I ghosted you. I failed to reply to you, but... I don't think the clues have got worse since it's gone to the New York Times. I sent Ed a tweet yesterday from the uh, comedian Tessa Coates. Yeah. Can I say it? The words in Wordle have been shit since it went to the New York Times. Really? And I've seen a lot of that on Twitter. So I've noticed repeated letters seem to be coming up more often. But is that a bad thing? I think repeated letters makes it harder. It does make it harder, but you've got no way of knowing. Because you slightly, what's the right word, not humble bragged, but... You you basically said you like I think last week you'd done two of them in a row in two and we'd basically taken four for both of them. Oh yeah, it was no, it wasn't a humble brag. There was no humility. It was just a brag. I was on this. Is that called a brag then? Yeah, I did two days running. I got it in two, and then quite commonly I've been getting it in three. But there's been a few oh. times recently I've been cut out by the repeated letters. And what happened? I've ended up doing it in five or six. <laughs> well, that's extremely good news. That's going to make my family extremely cheerful. That'll, that's a reason to be <laughs> cheerful, to my friend. Uh, because to be honest, to be honest, your brag, not humble brag, sort of threw us for a loop, really. 
It was like, how the hell is Jeff doing it in two? So it's de- it destabilised the whole family. It de- definitely, yeah. Because I, I made the point that one of me is equal to four of you. I, yeah, you, you then rubbed it in. I don't know what that is. Like, that's a sort of turbocharged brag. Um, uh, but, but the uh, days of the two repeated letters, which have been recently, we did them both in four, but, we, but it took some doing, actually. But you're saying you did it in more than four. Do tell. There was one day I did it in six and I felt humiliated. <laughs> six. But look at how open I'm being about it. A lot of people would keep that shame to themselves. Well, you're obviously quite a confident person, not. Uh, the two repeated letter words were both quite tricky words, actually, weren't they? Ish. We two take quite a long time, actually, to be fair. What is your strategy on it? What's your first word? What's your opening word? Vary it from day to day. For example, yesterday it was rogue. That's interesting. I shall feed that back. Wow's is steel stare. I try not to use the same word every day. I try to use a different word every day. Yeah. Do you then go for it if you get, say, one or two letters, or do you try a, diff- a different five letters? Because I think probably the maximizing strategy is to then do a completely different set of letters to try and get to, say, four letters. It is, but there's something called the hard setting where you can't do that, where once you've got letters, you have to include those in your guess. Do you do the hard setting? Yes. Oh, for goodness sake. (laughs) Are you serious? Yeah. The trouble is, basically, this conversation has ended on a pretty downer of a note because you're basically saying that your six or your five is based on a harder approach than ours yes my head is in my hands you t- you tell your family about that <laughs> well because i feel that if you don't if you play it in the easy way you're you're working on the monkeys and typewriters principle so basically in this conversation you're comparing me and my family to the shakespeare principle of monkeys and typewriters exactly yes thank you very much <laughs> and you sort of giveth with one hand suggesting that you've done worse than us and then you taketh away with the other concluding that you'd actually done better than us <laughs> <laughs> and it, and you say you're not competitive. Right. Yeah. Should we talk about what we're talking about? Yes. So this week, we're looking at fuel poverty, what exactly that means. And we are going to discuss some of the potential routes out of it. Now, with the incoming rise in our energy bills, combined with the ongoing cost of living crisis, millions more people are going to fall into fuel poverty over the coming months. And to help us understand the scale of the crisis and what can be done to help those in need, we're joined by friend of the pod and CEO of the Resolution Foundation, Torsten Bell. Torstigins. The Chief Executive of National Energy Action, Adam Scorer, and then to discuss some of the uh, policy areas and ideas that could help us find a solution, we'll be speaking to Dr. Elizabeth Blakelock. What's your reason to be cheerful, Jeff? It's half term. And one of the things we did was went to the South Bank Centre in London over the weekend, where every year they have something called the Imagine Children's Festival, where they have loads of stuff going on, one of which was a children's hip-hop disco and and the name was brilliant and the name itself is my reason to be cheerful ready for this yeah which i guess yes tot hop fun dmc that's based on the popular group bun dmc correct (laughs) there we go i I did what i did think i wonder if ed's knowledge of pop culture will stretch that far and you've proved that it it, it does so Uh, what's what's your reason to be cheerful well my reason to be cheerful is um I got back one evening and Justine and the children were away, actually, in Nottingham, visiting her parents. And the easy thing for me to do have done would have been to have some frozen ready meal. But 
I made a shakasuka with feta cheese. Ooh. That's not bad, eh? How, how involved with it? How long did it take you from start to finish? Didn't take too too long, actually. Well, it's basically baked eggs with some tomato. And some um, spices. And some spices. It was rather nice, actually. Fantastic. Well, I, I, and then I ate it and then thought, damn, I didn't send Jeff a picture. It would have actually looked a lot better than some of the other, <laughs> some of the other efforts. Because um, I feel that some of the photos you've sent me look like you've yeah. made something and then it's fallen on the floor and you've picked it back <laughs> up again. <laughs> yeah. Well, we, we're only in mid-February and it seems like your search for a new hobby is complete then. Bake Off, here I come. And I was going to suggest historical reenactments next. <laughs> Reasons to be Cheerful, a podcast about ideas with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. So to start our discussion about fuel poverty, I'm very glad to say that we're joined by Torsten Bell, who's the CEO of the Resolution Foundation at Think Tank. Torsten, thanks so much for joining us. Morning. Perhaps you can start by helping us to set the context here about how we measure fuel poverty, how the government measures it, how we should be measuring it. And, and how it's changing? Well, at one level, the answer to that is really simple, which is everyone's energy bills are going up by £700. And that's a lot of money for almost everybody. And it's going to be rubbish. And if you're poor, £700 is a lot of money. At another level, obviously, statisticians and economists have always got more complicated ways of trying to think about something that's relatively simple. So over the last decade, We've had a phase where we've measured fuel poverty in line broadly with how we think about poverty overall, which is to say if people are on low, have low disposable incomes compared to the typical household, once we take into account how much they spend on energy, we used to call them fuel poor. The government has changed that recently to say you're only fuel poor if you meet that definition, but on top of that, you live in a energy inefficient home. Now, at one level, that obviously just knocks out lots of people in council properties or local authority or housing association properties, which tend to be higher energy efficiency homes. Personally, I don't think that's a great measure to use. So what we do as an organisation is focus instead on what we call fuel stress, which is a simpler thing, which just says, if you spend more than 10% of your disposable income on energy, on heating your home, that is a disaster and you're in fuel stress. And that matches broadly how we also think about housing stress. Once you're spending a large proportion of your budget on an essential good, you're in trouble. And that's basically what's going on in Britain today. Torsten, just put this, what's going to happen in April on energy costs and on the cost of living more generally in some kind of context for us, but because you can't look at this energy thing alone, can you? I think it's going to be a cost of living catastrophe is, what's, is what is coming up. Now, the energy bit of it is particularly acute for uh, two reasons. One, because it's large, obviously, but it's also because it's swift. It's all happening at once because we're used to phases of energy bills going up and that being hard for households. That's what we saw in the first half of the last decade when the last energy price rise uh, came through. The difference this time is because of the way the energy price cap works, it all comes through at once and hits a lot of households at the same time rather than happening to different people over a period of maybe two years. It's really swift and also it's obviously an essential. So it's not like the price of Lamborghinis going up and that being a disaster. The scale of the energy price increase is quite unprecedented as well, isn't it? 
It's really large, although overall, I mean, we did see very large rises in the period after the financial crisis when you were busy trying to announce energy price freezes. So it's not totally incomparable to that. It's bigger, but it's not totally incomparable. But the overnightness of it, it's gone through the roof much quicker, is extreme. And then I think you then got to set that in a wider context, which is it's not just energy prices that are going up. Inflation overall is rising very quickly. New data out just recently shows us hitting 30-year highs for inflation. We'll be hitting well above that in the next two months as this energy price rises feed into the official inflation statistics. But these are really big numbers. Prices generally are going up. You're seeing that in the bits that are tied to energy. So yes, on heating your home, particularly bad for the poor, paying for petrol and diesel, particularly large for richer households. But also we're just seeing generally prices starting to tick up. That's the backdrop to people having to cope with these particular rises in energy costs. And at the same time, we're also seeing wages, yes, you know, probably slightly stronger than we were expecting in this stage of the recovery, but still nowhere near keeping up with inflation. We're going to see real wages falling for most households over the course of the next year. And then on top of that, taxes are going up. And although taxes are going up mainly for higher earning households because of it's focused on the national insurance rises, in general, for lots of middle income households, it's going to feel pretty tough as those things come together. So we've got growth, but we've got a cost of living recession, essentially. And the context, obviously, is that policy did protect, on average, household incomes from the big fall in GDP during the pandemic. But as we come out of the pandemic, GDP will has recovered now to its pre-crisis levels, should be growing at an OK rate over the course of the next year. But household incomes are going to be falling. So it's not going to feel like a recovery in terms of your household budgets, even if it does for the for GDP. So given this wider context, should we be thinking about this as, as fuel-specific policies or are there just bigger ideas that would be a better focus? Well, that's a, that's a great question. So I think we should be focusing on some fuel-specific policies because it's an essential. And so I don't think we should treat it as the same as just any old price rises as a very different effect on poorer households for that reason. Secondly, it's identifying some clear problems in how our energy system works and addressing those over the medium term is really important in minimising the chance of this happening again. But it doesn't mean that's all we should be doing. So like generally, this cost of living crisis goes beyond fuel. And so we should be worrying about the incomes of poorer households generally in that context, not just with the fuel. So I think, yes, you need policy that is focused on the energy sector, particularly in the medium term. In terms of the crisis today, then the best answers to it do generally just focus on increasing the incomes of poorer households to deal with both, yes, the energy specific part of this, but also the wider cost of living pressures that are about to hit us. And the government has announced proposals in relation to energy. How does it pass the Resolution Foundation test. It ticks the box on being substantive, as in there's quite a lot of money, at least if you think about it in terms of what's happening in the year ahead, five and a half billion pounds on the £200 bill discount for households, and then uh, a few more billion on the £150 council tax rebate for most, but not all households. So it's not, it's not nothing. In terms of like big picture, how should people think about it? I think the distinctive things about what they've decided to do are that they want to provide fairly universal support to households. So not the 20% of those in the most expensive properties, but still it's pretty universal compared to, for example, a focus on the benefit system to provide that support. So they've chosen a pretty universal way of doing this. The result of going more universal 
is that you don't have enough support for lower income households as a result. And remember, all these numbers we bandy around in terms of a £700 bill increase going on, they're all based on the typical bill usage. But remember, there's a lot more variation than people understand, I think, in how much energy different households use because families are just different. If you've got lots of kids and you're in a poorly insulated property and you've got an old boiler, your bill rise is going to be much higher than £700. Yeah, like 10% of households spend more than 50% above the average. There's some people with very different outcomes in the real world. You just call it as some people are going to get absolutely stuffed. Isn't the big problem then, Tolston, which is that if you've got a £700 bill increase coming, you've had 120 already on the cap, which is often forgotten about, and you could have more in October. Yeah, you could easily have another £100 in October. What, what the government's proposed is £150 on the council tax rebate and then £200 in October, but that has to be paid back. That is surely not adequate to the scale of the need for the poorest households, is it? Yeah, so the chancellor, the chancellor's would say he's providing about half of the bill increase. That is obviously, as I say, true and average to some degree. The challenge is with, I think, one, £350 isn't enough support for the poorest households. And then secondly, the nature of the support is suboptimal from our perspective. So the £200 is a loan rather than a rebate, and we'll be paying that back over the next uh, five years, £40 a year. Now, that might work out okay if energy bills fall during those years. If energy bills don't fall, I think it's completely non-credible. Is the government really going to go into a 2024 election if energy bills are still high, telling people that they're still paying for 2022's energy? I'll be surprised. And then with the council tax rebate, it's always important to think about systems in government. It's often actually about systems and IT as much as it's about ideology. So we're using the council tax system to pay this £150 rebate. There will be lots of poor people who live in high council tax ban properties. So we think there's about 640,000 of the bottom third of the population who won't get this rebate, either because they need to rent somewhere at short notice or, for example, because they are pensioners who live on low income but live in a high value house. It's not well targeted at income because it's targeted via the price of your property as it was valued in the early 1990s, which, you know, you haven't got to be a genius to think isn't the best way to target support. If you want to target money at poor households, you should do it through the benefit system, which is there and designed to provide support to those on low incomes. So that's the best way to do it. It's it's not totally straightforward, given how late in the day it is. What we should have done is increase benefit up rating so that poorer households received significantly higher benefit payments from April onwards, during which time they'll be dealing with these high energy bills. And just to go into the weeds a bit more, Torsten, there is something called the Warm Homes Discount, which is a discount that some poorer households get. One option which Labour proposed was to increase that Warm Homes Discount and increase the number of people who are eligible for it quite significantly and have it paid for by government. I mean, presumably that remains an option. Yeah. So if you don't want to do, if you don't want to just increase benefits, then the next best way to have targeted support would have been to use the warm home discount scheme that currently exists and then to put it through some fairly hefty surgery, which is, I think, as you say, the kind of things you were proposing. And then on top of that, to increase the amount that people receive and to make sure that instead of being paid back via everybody else's bills, which is how the warm home discount works at present, then the state would have needed to cough up for that. The better way to do it is to use borrowing and then the tax system to pay it back in future years. That would have been the ideal way to, to go about this. And is the need to tackle the climate crisis and, and net zero a factor in this 
being something that more thought is going to need to be given to in the coming years? Yeah, that's, that's a great question. So I think the um, one of the less good responses I've seen from some people, particularly those that are obviously strong campaigners for net zero, is to say in the face of these energy bill rises, this is exactly like the lesson people need to get them off the hook of carbon. And that's bad politics. It's bad human too, because telling a load of poor people this is exactly what they've always needed, I'm afraid, is uh, I've got zero sympathy for that general approach. What there is obviously a hint behind it is that had we done a faster job of moving off carbon intensive sources of energy, then we would be less exposed to this uh, challenge. In the longer term, we need to get off carbon full stop as our source of energy production. The, um, at least, the good benefit in the UK, at least, is that's now a cross-party consensus. If you asked me 10 years ago, we'd have made as much progress as we have on some areas of uh, renewable energy, including offshore wind, I wouldn't have believed you. But I mean, we're making really fast progress now. So that's the good news. The bad news is that we also need to sort out the disaster that is the British housing stock. Our housing is just a joke when it comes to fuel efficiency compared to anywhere else in Europe. This is an embarrassment. Partly that's because we built it all in the Victorian era. So, you know, this isn't all recent politicians' fault. But if you look at what's happened over the last decade, we've gone from making quite swift progress in the early part of the last decade, in 2010, 2011, 2012, in terms of the number of homes having their lofts insulated, their cavity walls dealt with. And then we basically stopped that progress. We completely stopped it. And as a result, the last decade just hasn't seen the progress on insulation. And the reason this matters is, one, we need to, over the next you know period, move everybody away from gas boilers toward heat pumps. That will only work if homes are well insulated because these heat pumps won't give you a decent level of warmth if you haven't got a well-insulated home. And secondly, we need to get our bills down there in general. And so that failure to make progress over the last 10 years on home insulation is a complete disaster, even if you want to be nice and take into account that it's no, no current politician's fault that we all live in Victorian houses. Although I think that probably there is a case for government running a campaign to persuade people that Victorian features, which I know both feature heavily in both Jeff's and Ed's, homes aren't actually aesthetically desirable because basically they're completely they're completely stuffing over our energy efficiency that's the future jeff you can't have your victorian i I would rather live in a modernist cube well you're not doing very well (laughs) (laughs) you know Uh, well listen as always torsten you've been incredibly enlightening informative and educational that's what we're here for you see not fun but for education torsten bell ceo of the resolution foundation thanks so much for joining us thank you we're going to speak now to Adam Scorer, who is CEO of Fuel Poverty Charity National Energy Action. Hello, Adam. Hello. Thank you. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. Now, obviously, we're having this conversation because fuel poverty is uh, a big problem facing the country at the moment. But NEA isn't a new organisation. Your roots go back 40 years. Can you tell us a little bit about National Energy Action and the work you do? Yeah, we, we, we are 40 uh, years old and we really shouldn't have been around this long. So we started as a project by a bunch of students at Durham University and they got together and they thought they'd try and do something to help older households in Durham with energy efficiency. So actually, we started life as neighbourhood energy uh, action and then grew and grew. So we cover England, Wales and, and Northern Ireland now and, and do lots more stuff. But that's where the roots are. And actually, that's where our heart are. So we're a, a Northeast organisation by temperament and inclination. And our focus is not just on the income issues of poverty, but on warm homes, you know, people being able to enjoy warm and safe surroundings. And does this feel like the biggest crisis point in that time? I, I think it's the biggest single event. We're a seasonal organisation in many ways. When the cold weather hits, it is a crisis. But I don't think we've ever 
had sight lines of what's coming. We've got such kind of a, a degree of prescience. Uh, the understanding that it's the biggest single event to affect the fuel poverty numbers and households struggling to pay energies. So we've had the greatest amount of warning, the greatest amount of understanding of the impact, and, and sadly, we haven't translated that into proportionate responses. Let's talk about the current um, crisis, Adam. And obviously, in my day job, I've talked to you about this. But how do you see the scale of the problem currently facing those living in fuel poverty in the UK? I mean, talk to us about how you would describe it. Yeah, you see it through a number of different kind of lenses. So the, the obvious one is, so if in September 2021, we would have thought you had 4 million households across the UK in what we would call fuel poverty. So needing to spend 10% of their income to afford a decent level of heat. The numbers we think in April will be around 6 million households. So a 2 million household rise. So just in numbers game, it's dramatic. A number of things happen with that. One, those people already in fuel poverty, the severity of their situation exponentially gets huge. If they had some invidious choices to make, maybe they don't have those anymore. You get many more people coming in who may never have thought themselves of being anywhere near at risk of fuel poverty before into these dilemmas. So the, the, the depth of it, the breadth of it, and the hinterland around fuel poverty has all grown. What we're seeing are kind of phones ringing off the hook with people in desperate kind of straits thinking how they navigate this situation. And and to be honest, very little that we can actually do to support them. So in many ways, it's the worst single event that's hit the fuel poverty movement. And it's worth underlining, isn't it, that the scale of the increase, if it's £700 in April alone, on top of £120 increase in the cap that we've already seen, potentially more to come in October, we're talking about just the £700 means, what, around £60 a month, doesn't it? And for people on universal credit, on the lowest incomes, this, this is a very significant chunk of their income. It's huge. It's not a homogeneous group of people in fuel poverty. There's lots of people in different times of their lives and different circumstances. I mean, some of the stats you see are just absolutely remarkable. So I think it's for a a single adult who's on the basic rate of universal credit might be looking at spending or having to spend 33% of that on energy bills. And as you say, the range of people affected by this is is really broad. But I guess just to bring it to life a little bit for the listeners, just maybe give some real life examples of how it hits people, the choices that people are forced into making, the way it impacts on people's health and so on. You have a lot of of cases where people's living circumstances, so the homes in which they live in, technically EPC, <laughs> band F or G, their concerns are, are not just deficit between income and expenditure. It's the the challenge of, I just live with the cold and the damp all my life. We don't have hot baths. We don't have hot food. We heat one room in the winter. I just heat my children's room for an hour at the beginning of the day and an hour at the end of the day. And we all pile in there to keep warm. There was a couple of stories um, of people who had been so used to depending on warm public spaces, so libraries and pubs and cafes or other people's homes, which have been 
denied them. And just that being taken away has just closed down all their options for coping. So the sorts of things we see, a lot of them are about managing budgets, a lot of them about how just do I manage a decent quality of life for me and my family. Because there's something interesting in, in what you said there. So we think of it um, very much in terms of heating. And then perhaps with this happening in April, that delays how soon people are going to feel that. But also aspects of like cooking, hot foods, electricity. It's absolutely right that it's every aspect of your life. Actually, the common factor in almost all the calls we get, certainly the most distressing calls, is not just balancing budgets it is mental anguish it is levels of anxiety and desperation and despair and people in floods of tears because they can't do the decent thing for their their children that is such a common feature of people who reach out um, to us and then sometimes it's less about the little packages of support that you can give but just mainly just allowing them into systems of support and care so you can understand what it is that they need as people not as meter numbers or as account holders i know you have concerns specifically about people who are on prepayment meters the people on legacy prepayment meters that's people who aren't on smart kind of meters that the way in which support might reach them doesn't seem to me to be particularly well thought out or certain that it will uh, reach them. So I'm not assuming that those people who might be eligible for that £200 will get it or get on the meter and they'll, they'll recover the costs properly. Just to be clear, this £200 is the £200 which is being taken off bills to be put back on at a later date. Yes, this is the, the levy, the, the yeah. wannabe loan, that it's not clear how it's going to to work. What happens to folk in fuel poverty in rural communities who are by heating their homes by oil? It's... The gap analysis of the adequacy of this response is just so replete with areas where folk will fall through, not get the benefit. Some of our listeners may not know that much about this, about the people on prepayment meters. How many people broadly are on prepayment meters? And I'm right in saying, aren't I, that they face a significantly or somewhat higher price cap. So they're already at a disadvantage. So there's... Four million odd people on prepayment meters across the UK. We know that many of them, over a million of them, are in severe kind of financial distress when it comes to their energy bills. A lot of them are in private rented accommodation, in the lowest quality uh, homes when it comes to um, energy efficiency. They've never been well served by the energy market. The price crap is even more punitive on them. The prices will be greater. And they're the ones that make... And they'll be doing already in anticipation of the price gap going on. They're the ones that make the really hard choice is not, will I accrue debt but keep warm? It's, can I actually physically put money onto the meter? So it it is the intensification of challenge in the energy market for those householders. Just to explain, these are people for whom it it would be difficult sometimes to pass the credit checks, jump through the hoops that an energy company would want you to get set up with an account in the first place. These are often people who are on a prepayment meter because of debt, um, because they've had a debt history and rather than disconnect uh, them from the energy supply, they're put on a prepayment meter. So that debt is loaded on 
So that you're, of course, you're paying off a debt as well as paying for the energy that you use. You set out very clearly and eloquently the, the scale of the problem. What are you calling for to be done about it in the immediate term and then the longer term? In the immediate, what's been desperately needed is a deep and targeted approach for those people in the greatest need. So it's either money off the bill that makes a difference or money into the welfare system that makes a difference. You know, proportionality, not gesture. For us, the the long-term solution to this, insulating people from commodity prices, insulating people from price rises, is about housing stock. It's about the fabric of our homes and the heating systems that are in there. So you lessen exposure to cost, to bills, and you increase exposure to health and well-being and thermal comfort. And the, the great, the reason why I'm a professional miserabilist, which comes with the, the territory, but the spark of hope, which is quite considerable, is if we can get this alignment between fuel poverty, which seems to be cyclical, seasonal, it's a retail policy issue when we have a crisis. If we can get the proper alignment of that with the net zero agenda, with the decarbonisation of heat, and say a just transition must be about social benefits and warm homes and safe homes as much as it's about clean heat and kind of low carbon uh, emissions. Is if we can do that, I do believe we're in the moment when we actually have the solution to fuel poverty aligned with one of the biggest drivers of political decision-making for decades to come. We often hear from people after we have these conversations on the podcast who, who want to know what they can do. You know, people, I think, want to feel informed, but they also want to feel like they can make a difference. Is, is there something people can do to support the work you do, National Energy Action? One of the remarkable things over the past few weeks, and it happens when you get a moment of crisis like this, is that people do want to help and do want to support. So we've got a lot of people, actually huge numbers of people who want to donate because they can afford it. And we're quite, you have to be able to afford it. The £150 uh, council tax rebate. So we've got a lot of that, a lot of people financially supporting us, which is great. But it's, it's this thing we say every winter. What people could do is just to reach out to friends and family and neighbours who may be on their own, people who you feel may be a little bit more vulnerable, work through your local community organisations, because one of the, the great ways that we have with the, with the huge numbers of community and voluntary organisations is that people won't necessarily present themselves for support to NEA or their energy company or their local authority. They'll reach out to people who they know, who've supported them in the past, and just be alert to when you're seeing signs that might suggest fuel poverty and be clear about the ways you can help them or pass them on to other organisations. Well, that's really helpful advice. So thank you for that. And thank you for talking to us, Adam Scorer from NEA. Been a pleasure. Now to round out our conversation and talk further about solutions to the problems that we've heard so graphically described, I'd like to say that we're joined by Dr. Elizabeth Blakelock, who's an advocate and former principal policy manager at Citizens Advice. Elizabeth, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. I wondered if you could perhaps start by telling us a bit about your background when it comes to the work you've done on fuel poverty, both at Citizens Advice and your academic research. 
Well, I've been involved in fuel poverty one way or another since 2002. And, and my entrance actually was in, in financial exclusion, making sure that people can afford what they need. And then I worked at, in the private sector, looking to respond to the real pressures that were coming at that time from government, but also the energy regulator, to really be part of the solution when it came to fuel poverty. So my academic research looks at people who can't afford their energy, people who are in fuel poverty. Why is it that their voices were not making enough of a difference in policy making in those decisions that were being made? And how could we change to a situation where their experiences were the centre of decision making and therefore we could have an effective response? We want to spend some time talking about some of the ideas for solutions that are out there because there's some sort of brilliant and original thinking on this. We've heard from Torsten about what the government's response is and talking to both Torsten and Adam about ideas of what could be done. But I wondered if you could go a bit further into that and tell us about some of the things that have been piloted and tried, because I think people will be really interested in this. There's just such fantastic work going on to respond to the, the extent of the need within people's local communities, particularly um, in Scotland. Um, it's fantastic work in, in Glasgow, where people are making sure there are boots on the ground in local communities to listen to what would make a difference to them so that they could have a warm and safe home. So yes, part of that is some of the fabric conversation I'm sure you've had with your other guests around insulation, alternative fuels to, to keep a home warm. But it's also about having those advice conversations about what actually works for your individual home. What is it that you need on your street to make a difference? So they're highly local schemes. And there's also a really welcome focus on health. So we've known right from the inception of fuel poverty as a discussion, as a research area, as a policy area, we've known that the health outcomes, one of the biggest prizes here to intervene. And we see brilliant pilots that partner with healthcare provision to keep people's home safe and warm. So there's a scheme called Warm Welcome, which is working with midwives, warmth on prescription, looking at healthcare professionals. And there's a brilliant scheme, very small, but impactful in boilers on prescription, where literally GPs could prescribe a new boiler for people so they could be warm in their home. This, this is so interesting to me. It reminded me a bit of the episode we'd done on social prescriptions. There was a pilot done in the West Midlands. You t tell us a bit more about this idea of warmth or boilers on prescription. So we know that people who are struggling with their health have particular needs when it comes to their energy services. Mostly in this country, it's heating, but also in around air conditioning when it's too hot. Um, and then also having electricity you need to keep your home safe and warm. So what they what this looks at is rather than expecting people who are really struggling to pay all of their bills to know that there's funding available, to fill in an extensive form, which is usually only available online to get a grant. Often there's a very long waiting list for that. Rather than that very difficult process, you have experts in the community, trusted experts. And when someone goes to that, that GP or is talking to that midwife, they trust their comment and they say, actually, 
the the mold in your home, the fact that it's so cold, the fact that you um, have to limit how often you're running your washing machine, turning on the kettle, that's having a real impact on your health. And I can signpost you, I can make sure that someone is there to support you in accessing this grant or accessing this scheme to make sure that what you need comes into your home. And tell us, Elizabeth, how have these trials gone and have there been some good positive outcomes that we can focus on? Absolutely. So because we're meeting people where they are, they're worried about their health, they're talking to their healthcare professionals, we see that there are um, lower rates of respiratory challenges. There are hugely increased reports of people's mental health, how they feel about living in their home, um, how they feel about staying in their home when they need to be safe at home and warm. And the feedback from healthcare professionals is entirely consistent with the now decades of evidence, lower rates of fuel poverty translate into better health. And I think that's the point, isn't it, that there's the social costs of fuel poverty but also there are, I'm sure, massive economic costs that the country is facing as well in terms of poor health, a whole range of other factors. Ultimately, fuel poverty is where inequality in society meets an insufficiency of energy efficient houses. And when we talk, and I get to, to listen to the two of you talk about structural responses to structural problems of inequality. I mean, it is very literally a structural problem with fuel poverty. It's the walls, it's the, the pipes and wires, which can be improved with proven technology. This is not a policy space where we're um, lacking in, in evidence of things that are going to make a difference, that we're lacking grant funding to make sure it actually makes its way into people's homes. And it, it seems obvious that tackling the climate crisis has to, has to be central to any solution. What is the way of thinking about those two things, those two needs, that, that we join them together so that one enhances the other? I think myself and, and many other fuel poverty advocates would say that the kind of retrofitting that we're talking about is important for all homes. Why we would talk, connect the, the climate debate to the fuel poverty debate was to say we need to make sure that the people who are struggling the most get the support first. And it's making sure that people who won't have access to credit, they won't get the loan to improve a home they own. They need grant funding and they may need support in, in talking to whoever does own their home. And there's an enormous opportunity to connect fuel poverty responses to the broader conversation about the Green New Deal, about a green recovery from COVID. This is the idea that high skilled jobs are created to insulate people's homes. Those people then uh, who are in their home have the health benefits of a warm, safe home. They also have more income to spend on other goods to use in our economy as part of the recovery. So these two things are so well aligned and could make an enormous difference. I'm, I'm just flabbergasted that it has not already been put into play. Another idea is district heat networks. Can you tell us about those? So district heat networks are going to play a huge role in our transition to a net zero society. So it's quite a different way of, of thinking about warming your home. You're sharing, ultimately, your heating with an area, smaller or larger. And then that means that you may feel that it's quite a big change in the way that you 
decide to heat your home. So you won't be coming in and turning up your thermostat if you're particularly cold in most settings. And they have had excellent outcomes for some social housing in Europe, where we see that the joining up of high quality housing, social housing providers and and a heat network can be really positive. I'm just thinking about how much um, interacting with the heating in our homes has changed over the years with the introduction of uh, smart meters and technology. Have any of the schemes helped bring people up to speed on that stuff who might not necessarily be that tech savvy? Yes, there are some really successful pilots around testing in people's homes, how they respond to a different type of thermostat, an accessible in-home display. I have to say, though, Jeff, I don't think we can count on every single person in the country suddenly becoming a passionate energy geek like me if we're going to get to a net zero society. Really, what we want is a seamless journey. So that might be... um, a fridge or a washing machine, which is using energy when it's at its cheapest. That might be a heating system with a safety response on it, which sends a message to a carer or a health professional if your heating is is not on at the level that it needs to be. So technology provides lots of different opportunities, but there hasn't been the funding there to systematically implement it in a way that would make a difference. And if we're going to get to a net zero society, we need that to be far more inclusive and responding to people's need to have accessible energy services, affordable energy services is such a core foundation of a just transition. So there's great opportunity for that technology to automate rather than the weight of responsibility being on the homeowner. Absolutely. We have a thing on the podcast, Elizabeth, called, which you will know about, I think, as a podcast listener called the Jeffocracy. And I can see your excitement in uh, being able to be in the Jeffocracy. Un- unlike Ed. Unlike me, yeah. I'm, I'm, pretty, I'm pretty sort of... Ambivalent at best. I'm pretty cynical about the Jeffocracy by now. But if Jeff were to give you the role of devising the policy to tackle fuel poverty, where would you, and I think you've obviously given us a very clear indication, but where would you begin? Well, after I'd have recovered from my hangover with the extensive celebration of the long-awaited Jeffocracy, I would take a tray of coffee <laughs> to the Green Deal Czar's office to talk about how we can get a, a local response based on health to people's energy needs. So that would be a funding mechanism led by grant funding for trusted local organisations to deliver a nationwide retrofit strategy and that starts boots on the ground first in communities that we know need it most. What do you think, Jeff? Well, I think uh, Elizabeth's in the VIP room at the party to celebrate the dawn of the Jeffocracy. Dr Elizabeth Blakelock, thank you for being such a brilliant guest. Well, what did you think of that conversation, Jeff? Firstly, I feel this is your purview, your area of expertise, so I won't take up much time here. But the, the two things I took out of it are, are that the, the sticking plaster for this immediate crisis in April is woefully inadequate. But I was struck, as I so often am, um, by these conversations, how entwined with the, the changes we need to make towards net zero to tackle the climate crisis all this is. And that thinking has to be integral to it. I completely agree with you on both counts. You know, we put forward a set of proposals which would have given up to £600 to £9 million of the 
poorer households. And part of the funding for that is paid for by a windfall tax on the oil and gas companies. And, and that is important. So, so I think sometimes people have, the way this has been covered, it's like the crisis is coming in April and then that's sort of it. And, I, and it really isn't because the scale of crisis will really hit people perhaps next winter. <laughs> and so the, the kind of campaign to get the government to move further and on this has got to carry on but then but then secondly you are completely right there is such a kind of obvious thing to be doing which is a big mass energy efficiency program that could make an absolutely huge difference to people and the way i sort of think about this is look are we really going to go from the kind of high carbon unjust world where there are millions of people in fuel poverty to the zero carbon unjust world where there are millions of people in fuel poverty well, well surely no and we've got to use this this moment to do the kind of energy efficiency measures that we should have done long ago. It was also exciting to hear from Elizabeth that technology could be put to better use by shifting the responsibility from people having to figure out their smart meters and and work out almost appliance by appliance how to make their houses more uh, energy efficient to using smart technology to be doing that in the background Anyway, I mean, that, that seems like a great opportunity. The thing about energy efficiency is we know how to do this. When I was energy secretary, we started on some house-by-house, street-by-street programs that were starting to make a difference to people. And we just need this to be a big national mission. You're listening to Reasons to be Cheerful with Ed Miliband and Jeff Lloyd. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and get a unique WordPress website or store right away. From there, you can customize your design, colors, and content. And Bluehost automatically helps you get found in search engines like Google and Bing. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins, Bluehost makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Go to Bluehost.com slash Wondersuite. As ever, we would love to hear from you, cheerfulpodcast.com. And this is great. The subject line is heartwarming story. And it comes from Bay Whitaker, who says, I was listening back to some of your older episodes, and it reminded me of this. My bloke and I have been together for 38 years. We recently got married. It was in September 2018. And that was pretty much down to one of your early podcasts on No Fault Divorce. Wow. Bay says, during the discussion, one of the experts spoke out about how cohabiting partners have no rights when each other dies, like married partners do. And the idea of a common law marriage doesn't really exist in the UK. 
We aren't planning on dying, but as we're getting older, we started talking about marriage as a pragmatic decision, just in case. We decided we'd have the kind of wedding that would suit us. We had two friends as witnesses at the registry office. Our daughter came too. We went for coffee and cake afterwards and then went to work and got on with our day. It was a really happy thing to do and suited us because we never wanted to have a big expensive party and wedding anyway. I think it cost less than £300 for the registration process. So thanks for prompting us to do that. Bay, I mean, I, I think that sounds wonderful. I think the only way it could have been improved would be by having Ed and myself as the witnesses. You've never married somebody? I have, actually. Have you? Yes. Are you serious? Yeah, I am. Um, I mean, this is, a, this is a long story, but I married two radio listeners in Las Vegas with Sogs from Madness as one of the witnesses. You must expand on that at a future episode. Uh, well, it involved becoming ordained on the internet and some fairly elaborate robes. What an extraordinary life you've led. Yeah. How about you? Have you ever married anyone? No. I mean, apart from your wife, obviously. Yeah. Well, this one um, comes from Alex Naylor Teeth. And I was actually going to mention this myself anyway, but here goes. Dear Ed and Jeff, last Saturday, my wife and I were visiting friends and planned to see if we could spot Ed at the Finsbury Park Park Run. I couldn't quite believe it when I saw him on the start line, but couldn't bring myself to say hello. We set off at a similar pace until the first hill where I managed to pull away. After I'd settled into the run, confident that I was going to beat Ed, he started to overtake me. Yes! (laughs) Near the end of the run, and we ended up in a sprint to the finish. High on adrenaline, I plucked up the courage to say, I love your podcast. I should say, Alex, just is just a sort of bracket here. Alex did actually beat me by a second. Um, So he's a kind of humble guy obviously who didn't want to mention this ed took pity on me and took the time to chat we started talking about my job i work for a small company which builds software for large batteries that are used to help match the supply and demand of energy on the national grid ed's enthusiasm on the subject made me wonder whether you could do an episode about energy storage this is sort of clean energy storage we've heard the classic example of energy demand spiking as everyone turns their kettle on during the world cup but people might not be aware of the daily challenges of supplying energy as we rely on more weather-dependent power sources. It would be great to hear more about how different countries are making their electricity systems ready for a zero-carbon future. He then does add, my wife had also hoped to meet Ed at Parkrun. However, she had drunk too much on Friday in nervous anticipation and she couldn't make it. She sends her jealous apologies. Well, it's very gracious of you to read out that email despite the fact that he beat you. It was a photo finish, I should say. But he still beat you. But he still beat me. Yeah. Um, and, and a quick one here from Gabrielle, Gabrielle Shamash, who basically indulged you by running the uh, the numbers for your pond air temperature, water temperature <laughs> data graph. She contributed um, to scientific knowledge is what you actually mean. She did. I'm not sure those were your motives by asking for it. But Gabrielle says, I just Are you questioning you. my motives? Yes, yes, yeah, very okay. much so. Just checking. Fine. Yeah. Fine. Um, I just wanted to thank you guys for publishing the graph and article. As a total nerd, it definitely felt great to see that other people appreciated it, including my family who thought it was quite cool. Who'd have thought, Ed, that something that started with you thinking about exactly what type of swimming trunks you were going to wear would end with somebody getting some cool cred? With their own family. I would have thought that would have happened. Gabrielle continues with, I decided to write about UK politics for the Brown University student newspaper, The Indian. I thought you might be interested. I've attached the link and the longer version. Well, thank you for that, Gabrielle. And uh, I think we should probably stick that in the show notes as well. And also remember, we've got the temperature gun now, so there might be more data coming. Mm-hmm. 
Send us your ideas or suggest a guest for a future episode. Email reasons at cheerfulpodcast.com. Find us on Facebook or tweet at cheerfulpodcast. Woohoo, we're in the outro. I uh, have a bone to pick with you. Oh no, not another one. I believe you have committed me to a park run. <laughs> I'm not sure that's quite right, is it? A friend of mine met you at Parkrun yes. last Saturday and um, she texted me to say, oh, I'm next to your pal Ed. And I said, oh, you should say hello to him. He loves meeting people. I'm not joking. And she did. She said, well, I don't want to look like a fan. I want him to know that I'm a serious podcast person because she works at ACAST and yeah, yeah, that yeah. podcast. And I said, no, honestly, uh, I've never known anyone more en- energised by talking to strangers. Definitely, definitely. So the two of you got talking, presumably, and then maybe an hour later, I received a text message from her saying, you were right, and we agreed that you will come to Highbury Park Run. You being Jeff. Yes. I mean, that's not 100% my memory. I was a bit more fatalistic. She said, I keep trying to persuade him to do park run, mm. and he never wants to. And I was a bit sort of, meh. I'd sort of given up on you, really. Yes, I think a lot of people have. I, I think I need to start with not even couch to 5K, but if I can get from couch to toilet without getting breathless, I think that's probably a realistic goal for me at the moment. I think when you reach the sort of peak of the fitness that I was at, Jeff, you've got to keep on the regime in order to maintain it. I mean, I'm reluctant to give you a compliment, but you do. I, I feel like you're reverse aging. That's nice of you to say. Well, as I increasingly look like an old wizard, I look like um, Luke Skywalker when he renounced the Force and went to live on a wet rock. I mean, it's funny you should say this because we were just watching Lord of the Rings last night <laughs> and, you do, and you do look a bit like Gandalf, actually. I could see you as a Gandalf. <laughs> or maybe even like one of Jean's friends' children's parties, you could pretend to be Gandalf. Shall we, uh, shall we thank our guests? Yeah, let's do that. I'd like to thank Torsten Bell, Adam Scorer and Elizabeth Blakelock. Emma Corsham, as ever, produces the audio for our podcast. Thank you to Emma. All the research and guest booking was done by Joe Kenyon at Goldfish, with thanks to Matthew Lipson for his help on this particular episode. Gail Lofthouse is our announcer. James Deacon made our eye dance. Ed Seed composed the music. And our artwork was designed by... Henry Cull. He's been playing Wordle on easy mode. He's had a nice aroma and not been a cynic. <laughs> and, uh, and these have been... Reasons to be cheerful. Reasons to be cheerful.